Here's how it is. You're both alone in his cell. You've slipped out a knife, eight to ten inch blade, double-edged. You're holding it beside your leg so he can't see it. The enemy is smiling and chattering away about something. You see his eyes, green-blue, liquid. He thinks you're his fool. He trusts you. You see the spot. It's a target between the second and third button on his shirt. As you calmly talk and smile, you move your left foot to the side to step across his right side body length. A light pivot toward him with your right shoulder and the world turns upside down. You've sunk the knife to its hilt into the middle of his chest. Slowly he begins to struggle for his life. As he sinks, you have to kill him fast or get caught. He'll say why or no, nothing else. You can feel his life trembling through the knife in your hand. It almost overcomes you, the gentleness of the feeling at the center of a coarse act of murder. You've pumped the knife several times without even being aware of it. You go to the floor with him to finish him. It's like cutting hot butter, no resistance at all. They always whisper one thing at the end, please. You get the odd impression he is not imploring you not to harm him, but to do it right. If you're like me, that may have been the first time you've heard a real-life murderer describe his kill. Or, if you're a sick fuck like my partner Santi over here who obsessively listens to murder podcasts, Hello there. then you're well acquainted with perpetrators' accounts of their crimes. Part of me likes to think that I'm above wanting to know these kinds of debased, gory details. Like, I'm the kind of guy who when he needs to unwind after a long day, instead of flopping on the couch and turning on Tiger King, will throw a few logs into the fireplace brew a cup of herbal tea and open up some fat biography on Henry James or Virginia Woolf. Well, someday, in the future perhaps, when I get my shit fully together and be the man I know I can be. Till then, there's plenty of wasting away on my couch, watching Tiger Kings and Yankee Sluggers, and though I've always been particularly attracted to the biographies of writers I admire, the majority of that kind of reading has taken the form of lonely nights spent anxiously scrolling through Wikipedia avoiding my own unfinished book by reading about the lives of those who did finish. And I particularly like it if it turns out that, along with writing great books, they happen to do some murdering, plagiarizing, fighting, flandering, and good old-fashioned drug and alcohol abuse while they were at it. So though I like to fancy myself an intellectual whose interests run much deeper than your garden-variety gossip, the reality is that, just like most people who claim to be above it, I'm completely full of shit. As for myself, as you already know, barely two minutes in, I am more of the sick fuck variety. Reading, writing, watching movies, listening to podcasts, surfing the web, they're all mostly an excuse to take a look into the minds and actions of truly terrible people and characters. Horror, terror, true crime, the uncanny, the weird and the eerie. You name it, I'm into it. Highbrow and lowbrow, I don't really care, as long as it fills me with dread and gives me that lovely feeling in the pit of my stomach. The passage Ramon had just read is from a book called In the Belly of the Beast, a collection of prison letters written by Jack Henry Abbott to Norman Mailer. A woman named Richie Dan, the wife of one of Abbott's victims, said of him, He's not a writer who killed, he's a killer who wrote. For Mr. Abbott, this was probably the most insulting thing anyone could have said about him. I don't begrudge Richie Dan for calling Abbott a killer first. But I don't agree. For me, Abbott was very much a writer first, and that's what makes his crime so interesting. 
But if, quoting the late great philosopher Margaret Thatcher, a crime is a crime is a crime, why bother making the distinction? That's exactly one of the questions this podcast is going to address. Why is it that people like me are especially interested in true crime when it's a writer committing the crime? Clearly, it's because part of me likes to view murderers and violent criminals as distant others. Similar to the way I sometimes walk past homeless people on the street or gloss over newspaper articles announcing staggering death tolls in faraway lands, I distance myself from or dehumanize violent criminals in order to make their crimes easier to digest. But with a writer with whom I share some kind of intellectual kinship or anyone else who shares my background, interests, or worldview, the distance necessary to believe I'm nothing like them isn't there. And that's unsettling. It's, it's fucking creepy. We're also going to look into why and how this admittedly bullshit distinction between writers and criminals has enabled and helped excuse some serious criminal behavior. I'm Santiago Lemoine, and I'm a bookseller, failing writer, and true crime fan from Buenos Aires. And I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller, failing writer, and Yankees fan from New York. And I'm Ramona Stout. I'm not a bookseller, and whether I'm failing or not as a writer depends on which day you ask me, but I am a fan of a story well told. I live in Hanya, on the island of Crete, and I'll be jumping in and out of this season, embodying some bad people and some not-so-bad ones as well. Think of Corey and Santi as your hosts, and me as your narrator. I'll rejoin you as myself at season's end. Till then, take it away, fellas. Okay, without further ado, with Ramon in Crete and Corey and I together here in our empty bookshop in El Cabañal, Valencia, we bring you Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. This season, we've got 10 episodes about the three men we had the great fortune and misfortune of spending much of the pandemic with. Jack Henry Abbott, Norman Mailer, and Jerzy Kuczynski. Three men whose crimes were all aided and abetted by the fact that they happened to write books. We'll present the facts as we understand them, and you can decide whether or not this podcast deserves the title of True Crime. We're not particularly sure ourselves. You see, true is always a tricky word with writers of fiction. And while we'll be looking at the work of these dead and largely forgotten men through the lens of their criminal biographies, we do hope this podcast will offer more than sensational hooks and gory details. But as for the sordid details Corey claims he's not interested in, well, there will definitely be some of those. Violence, sexual violence and abuse will occasionally be described throughout this season. We'll give you a heads up before the particularly fucked up episodes, But please note that if you're a person who's sensitive to or triggered by this kind of content, Penknife might not be for you. For those of you who do want to keep listening, we also intend to probe age-old questions such as to what degree should art be judged by the actions of its creator? How does a violent life affect one's writing? And likewise, how can writing about violence, depravity and crime affect one's life? Our plan had also been to bring you stories from our bookshop here in Spain, and the many others around the world that we've had the fortune, or great misfortune, to run and work in. But damn it, there just wasn't space. So the riveting accounts of our days here at La Libreria, where we mostly just repeat over and over again to every old lady in the barrio that, sorry, no, we do not buy old encyclopedias, we'll have to wait for another podcast. 
This one's all about books and the crooks who wrote them. July 18th, 1981, a dog day, if ever there was one. Temperatures had peaked at over 100 earlier that afternoon when Veronique was home listening to 1010 Winds say it was the hottest day in the city in 20 years. She's only lived in New York for four, but even she knew what happens on days like these. Sex and violence. What else? This is New York City, 1981. The sounds of her neighborhood are punk, no wave, hip-hop. If that ain't sexy, what is? Well, drugs, maybe. They've never been easier to come by and the demand is endless, proven to take the edge off poverty and there's no shortage of that. Half her neighborhood is panhandling and lining up for soup in Tompkins Square, but a 20-minute walk south to Wall Street and you'll see the worst gangsters of all, operating with impunity from their gilded offices in the sky as they pull off the biggest ongoing heist the world has ever seen. This can't last. Veronique knows it, and she knows what a night like tonight means. All the reasons she fears New York, all the reasons she hates it, and all the reasons she can't fucking get enough, they all intensify on nights like tonight. It's now around 4.30 a.m. They've just left the Berlin, an after-hours club on the second floor of a building on Broadway and Prince. 17, or is it 18 people will have been murdered in this city by daybreak? And the Berlin club is known for its violent side, but tonight there's hardly even been a dust-up. Just the usual bad boys from Harlem and the East Side mingling with the NYU kids. Cheap drinks and plenty of loud funk and reggae, though the only Jamaicans in the joint were the coke dealers who didn't even bother to go to the bathroom to conduct their business. The air inside the club was clammy, but at least there'd been AC. Now, making a detour up to Astor Place to buy cigarettes, the air is stifling. This neighborhood of hers, the East Village, and for that matter, New York City, and this whole godforsaken country is all one big sewer. One that's been clogged and festering for far too long, and on a night like this, she really feels like something's about to give. John Lennon's dead, and so is peace, and fuck peace anyway. Back home 68 was the only thing that accomplished anything. Paving stones cracking flick skulls in the streets. That's how you make change. Yeah, people are high on meter on, but a president is still a president. She'll believe real communism when she sees it. And here she's sure that the decade-long radical burnout that was the 1970s is finally over. She knows people who know people in the Black Liberation Army, and word is that shit's about to get real. And one of the people that's gonna be a big part of the coming change happens to be this guy, with the horseshoe moustache rambling on to Susan about how much he loves his new puppy as they amble past the ghouls and zombies that haunt the pre-dawn Bowery. Jack Henry Abbott, that's his name. And as soon as his book drops, nobody's gonna forget it. He can't dance, and talking to him can be a bit awkward, but his book, well, even calling it a book, seems like an injustice. It's bigger, more important than a book. It's a how, a bomb threat, a fucking hijacking. It reads as if it's been written not with a pen, but with a knife. Yeah, that's it. He hadn't penned in the belly of the beast. He'd knifed it. And no joke, that blade was about to edge its way into the inflamed, putrid belly of this capitalist society and disembowel the whole fucking thing. That had happened soon enough. But first Jack wanted eggs, so they were headed to the binny bon.
In the late 70s, a federal prisoner named Jack Henry Abbott began corresponding with the writer Norman Mailer. Abbott was what one might call the literary type. Like us, he liked books. But actually, given that he'd spent most of his life behind bars, I'm guessing he liked them a lot more than the three of us and you five listeners combined. Books were all he had, and his education was purely autodidactic. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade and learned everything he knew through reading in his cell. When he started writing Mailer, he hadn't even heard 90% of his vocabulary spoken out loud. You know, I, I can relate to a certain extent. I mean, for example, until just now, I always thought that the word gilded was actually pronounced gilded. But picking up 90% of a vocabulary from reading, it's like learning a foreign language through reading books without ever hearing anyone speaking the language. Well, he did that too. He apparently taught himself multiple languages, including French and German, in order to read the likes of Sartre, Nietzsche, and his favorite, Marx. All this reading was facilitated by a Salt Lake City bookstore who, at his sister's request, would seek out obscure titles for him. So you can bet the guards, from day one viewed Abbott as a troublemaker, because he was a troublemaker, weren't so happy about all the reading he was doing. Fantasies or romance novels maybe wouldn't have been such a problem, but the kind of books Abbott was reading? You know what they say, knowledge is power. Abbott knew this, and in a letter to Mailer, he wrote, It has been not only my personal observation, but the experience of all prison authorities. The most dangerous prisoners, and I mean that also in the physical sense, are readers and writers. There's a corollary here that's even more disturbing. In The Belly of the Beast, Abbott writes, There are emotions, a whole spectrum of them, that I know of only through words, through reading and my immature imagination. I can imagine I feel those emotions, but I do not. At age 37, I am barely a precocious child. This precocious child tried out his extensive vocabulary in lots and lots of very long letters which he particularly liked to address to writers, whom he respected and whom he hoped might help him get paroled. His first pen pal of note, with whom he began corresponding in 1973, was a fellow named Jerzy Kaczynski, the Holocaust survivor and fun-loving pervert, who was then the head of PEN America while the organization was promoting a prison letter-writing program. For better or for worse, their correspondence was short-lived. Abbott was a hardcore Stalinist and Maoist, and because Kaczynski's ostensibly autobiographical novel The Painted Bird ends with the Soviets rescuing the main character, Abbott assumed Kaczynski shared his politics. Alas, that was far from the case. And when Kaczynski corrected him as to his feelings about communism, Abbott responded with a number of harassing letters, berating him for being a terrible person who did not support the dictatorship of the proletariat. So with Kaczynski out of the picture, Abbott was now in need of a new pen pal, preferably a famous writer. And as luck would have it, he just read that Norman Mailer was doing research for a quote, true life novel about the murderer Gary Gilmore. On the subject of Gilmore, Abbott was sure he'd have some information that Mailer would want. Like Gilmore, Abbott was, in his own words, a state race convict. The son of an Irish American GI who was short-tempered and alcoholic, and a Chinese-American prostitute who killed herself while he was still a child, Jack Henry Abbott spent the majority of his first years in Salt Lake City. Being mixed race, he wasn't recognized by either side of the family, and, as a result, he spent those years bouncing around foster homes. 
From age nine on, he was in and out of juvenile detention before settling into reformatory school where, save a brief six-month parole, he lived from age 12 to 18. When he got out at 18, it wasn't long before a shoe store robbery and some forged checks landed him in big boy prison. Reformatory in the early 50s was no cakewalk, but it was nothing compared to the hell that was, and I imagine still is, the Utah State Prison. There, he was regularly drugged, starved to the point where he had to live off of cockroaches, tortured by sadistic guards, beaten by other prisoners, and subjected to long stretches in solitary confinement, going sometimes weeks at a time in blackout cells. In total, he spent 14 years in some form of solitary confinement. In 1966, at the age of 21, two men attacked Abbott with intention of raping him and making him a, quote, prison wife. He knew it was coming, though, and armed with a knife, he stabbed one of them so many times he nearly severed his arm from his body. That man died. The other sustained a critical neck wound, but lived. The killing extended his sentence to a term of 3 to 20 years, which was then extended again in 71, when he managed to break out and spend six weeks on the lam before he was finally apprehended after robbing a bank in Denver. The escape and bank robbery added another 19 years to his sentence. From age 12 to 37, Abbott had been free a sum total of nine and a half months. Susan's best friend, Veronique, first brought her to the Binny Bon a couple of years ago. And since then, it's been their spot whenever the bars close and they aren't yet ready to go home. Yeah, sometimes it's filled with homeless guys nursing bottomless mugs of crummy coffee. But then again, you might get a seat at the counter next to somebody like Basquiat, Burroughs, Keith Haring, or Johnny Thunders, who was nodding into his minestrone the last time she saw him there. Clientel aside, the Binibon is kind of a 70s holdover, a hippie lunch counter with ferns hanging in the window, mismatched furniture and handbills taped to the wall, room for rent, lost dog, so-and-so playing at Seabees this Saturday. You get the idea. There's a blackboard above the coffee station that advertises a chicken liver omelette, steak and eggs, fish and chips, coleslaw, 2 50 each. Next to that, there's another board where the apple's been erased, but there's still slices of pear pie and cheesecake, 55 cents a pop. Tonight, this morning, this whatever you want to call it, those drinks were strong. There isn't much happening. It's the end of the graveyard shift and both the waitstaff and the customers look spent the former coming down off high doses of something and the latter in various states of intoxication. The noise is drowned out by a leaky, rattling AC, which is no match for the turbid summer air laden with the acrid smell of burnt coffee, which is itself mercifully masked by the heavy fog of cigarette smoke that's been gathering all night. A handsome Latino guy with curly hair drops some menus on the table and leaves before Susan gets a chance to ask him about the liver omelette. So she asks Veronique instead, and as soon as her friend begins talking, Susan realizes she's made a mistake. She's one of the top literature students at Barnard. She knows plenty about books, and plenty too about the world outside of them. But here goes Veronique, who just because she's French, fancies herself an expert on all things culinary. Yes, Susan knows that the liver is an organ that secretes bile, and that yes, it retains the taste of the blood it's charged with filtering. Growing up in the Philippines, she's eaten her fair share of liver, but she can hardly get a word in edgewise as Veronique goes on and on about how nice and sobering a liver omelette could be. 
It's not like fresh blood from a wound, when said wound is in your mouth. A bit lip, for example, or when the wound is deep and internal, when in an effort to extract that loose flowing blood from somewhere it shouldn't be, the body coughs it up. No, the taste is not like that, but rather the essence of blood after it's been cooked down with red wine and onions. It acquires a nutty, almost sweet flavor, but bloody, yes, bloody in a robust, life-affirming way. Veronique's liver monologue continues, but Susan's mind is elsewhere. It's drifted off to the land of cheese fries and Coca-Cola fizz, and it stays there until she notices that Veronique's mouth has stopped moving, and her eyes are fixed nervously on Jack. Jack's drunken glow is gone. He's irate. What's the problem? The cute waiter is now motioning for Jack to join him outside. Ashen. Almost skeletal. Jack's bottom lip quivers as he kicks out his chair. It scrapes shrill across the linoleum floor, and the two men walk outside. The letters to Norman Mailer that compose In the Belly of the Beast detail Jack Henry Abbott's life behind bars. And, as you might imagine, it's an angry book. From the first letter he received, Mailer recognized that he was corresponding with an exceptional literary talent. Abbott writes with a Dostoevskian intensity. His disenfranchisement and alienation spit off the page, and it's hands down one of the most fierce things I've ever read. If it wasn't for what happened after the book's publication, I'm sure it would still be widely read today and considered one of the most important books in U.S. prison literature. It is an incredibly powerful read. Well, at least for the first 90 pages. The next 75 where he runs about his undying love for communist dictators is insufferable, and I wish they hadn't included that nonsense in the book. Or at least that you, Corey, would have told me that I didn't need to read it. Well, the best I can do in atoning for that wrong is to tell you listeners right now, do yourself a favor and read the book, but put it down around page 90. His love for Mao and Stalin definitely did not age well. But if you happen to be the guy who comes into our store once every few months or so and buys up all the obscure Mao and Stalin titles that, against our better judgment, we've rescued from the dustbin of history, and sometimes even the literal bin, well, then you're going to dig the whole thing. The book was translated into Spanish, Nel Vientre de la Bestia, but it's extremely rare and going for hundreds of euros online. But if we ever do find it, we can pack it away in that special box with the, um, how shall we say, illicit material you save for that customer? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll put it in there next to Gaddafi's Libro Verde and Saddam Hussein's La Emancipación de la Mujer. I'm sure it will make his month. Anyhow, what amazed me most about the book was how aware he was of his own mental illness. Growing up a state-raised convict in what he called a gladiator school on a steady diet of violence, he knew he wasn't properly socialized to participate in the free world. He is explicit about this when he writes, quote, I feel such hostility, such hatred. I can't help this anger. All these years I felt it. Paranoid. I can control it. I never seek a confrontation. I have to intentionally gauge my voice in conversation to cover up the anger I feel, the chaos and pain just beneath the surface of what we commonly recognize as reality. Paranoia is an illness I contracted in institutions. It is not the reason for my sentences to reform school and prison. It's the effect, 
not the cause. Given what happened later, it's impossible to read passages like this one and not see the writing on the wall. But Mailer seems to have been blinded by what Abbott's writing could mean for his own reputation and career. See, neither of them were writing to each other selflessly. Abbott clearly wanted Mailer to help him get the fuck out of jail. And Mailer, well, his ostensible motivation was to gather details about the life and mind of a convict to use in his true-life novel, The Executioner's Song. But there was more to it than that. Mailer had always gone out of his way to cultivate an outlaw image for himself, and here was a real criminal, a legitimate outlaw and damn good writer to boot, with whom Mailer could claim cred by having, quote, discovered. In other words, he arguably wanted to manufacture the kind of relationship Sartre had with Genet or Beauvoir with Le Duc, and to do so not just for the good of Abbott, but for his own fame. They say what doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. But it's a mistake to equate the results with being strong. I'm weakened, in fact. I'm tenuous, shy, introspective and suspicious of everyone. A loud noise or false movement registers like a four-alarm fire in me. But I'm not afraid, and that is strange, because I care very much about someday being set free, and I want to cry when I think that I will never be free. I want to cry for my brothers I've spent a lifetime with, Someday, I'll leave them and never return. That someday was coming soon. Abbott had had more than enough of prison life, and even though he wrote about crying for his brothers, he apparently didn't shed too many tears when in 1980 he snitched on them in exchange for early release. He named the leaders of an inmate work strike and recanted one of his book's most egregious accounts of torture, pulling it from the final draft. His effort to gain parole was helped by Mailer, who wrote a letter on his behalf saying, The ability to write is often a life ladder to people with highly charged and difficult personalities, a way for them to solve their relation to other people and to society that they otherwise could not find without such talent, and I suspect this is the case with Jack Abbott. The parole board seemed to agree with Mailer and Abbott's editors, who'd also written letters advocating his release. This guy was about to be a literary star, and there was just no way a writer of his caliber and recognition would reoffend. Abbott himself maybe wasn't so sure. In one of the letters included in the book, he wrote, By the time you get out, if you get out, you're capable of anything, any crime at all. We'll hear what Abbott was capable of in the next episode of Penknife. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Riker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. 
We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. Thank you.